Thanks for tuning in to the Fertility Health Podcast, hosted by renowned fertility specialist Mark P. Trollis, MD. Each episode features first-hand advice and potential treatment news, tips, and strategies listeners can use on their fertility journey. And now, here's your host, Dr. Trollis. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Fertility Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Trollis, and I'm really excited about today's program. Joining me is one of the most renowned uh, researchers and academicians uh, in the country. Uh, it's Dr. Ricardo Aziz. Uh, he has done a tremendous amount of work in, in our field of reproductive medicine, particularly polycystic ovarian syndrome. And uh, he is the chief officer at the Academic Health and Hospital Affairs at the State University of New York, uh, back where I come from in the New York area. Uh, it's the largest university system actually in this country. He focuses on the study of reproductive endocrinology and androgen excess disorders. He's published over 500 original peer-reviewed articles and book chapters and reviews. You know, if you look at his resume, uh, uh, what we call curriculum vitae, I'm, I'm so humbled and, and um, envious of, of his work and how much he has put and helped us all in understanding polycystic ovarian syndrome. He's the founder and serves as the senior executive director of the Androgen Excess and PCOS Society. So we are truly, truly honored to have such a, um, such a leader in our field who has given us uh, valuable information, as I've mentioned. Polycystic ovarian syndrome, ovary syndrome now is actually, we used to call it ovarian, now it's polycystic ovary syndrome, uh, affects up to one in five women uh, there's a range of incidents, but about one in five women, and it's terribly frustrating. And so the talk today is going to be talking about why are women so frustrated? Why does it take so many uh, visits to a physician to get that diagnosis? And once we get that diagnosis, how can we expedite the evaluation and management to get some help for these patients who have really been suffering uh, for a long, long time? So. With that, I want to welcome Dr. Aziz to our program. Mark, thank you very much. It's uh, it's my pleasure, and and uh, you know, with that magnificent introduction, I'm already humbled, and I wish my mother was listening. So uh, uh, I appreciate it very much. Well, I, I appreciate that, and and the uh, you know, it, it goes back uh, to to our childhood and wanting to please our parents and to. Uh, to be so proud when they're proud, and, and uh, so my, I have on my desk, there's a, there's a note, my mom passed it about three years ago, and there's a note on my desk that she gave me a while ago, it's right on there, and uh, a special place in my heart. So it's, it's a great reference to talk about mom. So about one-third, as I said, or more of women, uh, the frustration lies in that study that, that I talked about, one-third or more of women reporting more than two years uh, uh, before they get diagnosed and seeing at least three or more health professionals, 50% of them, before they're diagnosed. Dr. Ziz, why is this such uh, a, an enigma, if you will? Why, why is this so difficult when seemingly the criteria is, is rather clear? You know, it is, uh, it is one of those things that I actually have always been puzzled by. <clears throat> We're actually better uh, now at diagnosing if, if you did that uh, kind of study uh, 15 years ago, it would take uh, women six physician visits before they could actually get an answer. It's, it, it's amazing. Part of it stems from the fact that 
the symptoms are not always clear. You know, often patients go to see physicians uh, for weight, for example, excessive weight, uh, and, and often that doesn't connect directly to polycystic ovary syndrome. So it is one of those things that 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 partially it's patients, right, because they you're, you're presenting vague symptoms, but then it's also um, the fact that a lot of physicians are not necessarily focused on the nuances of polycystic ovary syndrome. No, it's not just like one test tells you what you have. Uh, so I think partly the reason that it takes so long uh, lies in there. And I and 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 absolutely. And and I think also what I get, and I'm sure you do as well, is that patients will say, "Oh, my doctor checked me for that, and I don't have it." Uh, in other words, they'll do a, a total testosterone, or they'll. Uh, rely on an elevated LH to FSH, which is obviously only 60% of the time, uh, or um, some other, um, maybe maybe getting a fasting insulin, things that are not truly part of the criteria either from, from Rotterdam or, or Angen Excess Society. I think that's probably some of the ways that, that uh, these patients are getting delayed because they're just being told, or or if they're, if they're thin. You know, and your your wonderful paper in the in the, in the uh, Green Journal about two months ago uh, really surprised me to know how much uh, of, of a, uh, a lessening of the obesity in PCOS. It's almost half and half now of lean and PCOS. Correct? And, and, uh, and exactly. Uh, so, just to speak about obesity for a second, uh, you know, very often we tend to think that all patients with PCOS, many of them, are obese, but that's because you know, obesity tends to drive people to see the physician, as I said earlier. But when you study PCOS, just sort of garden variety out in the population PCOS, really only 30 to 50% of PCOS patients are obese in this country, uh, much less in other countries. So, so we shouldn't confuse PCOS and obesity. We shouldn't assume that just because you're normal weight, you don't have PCOS. Right. I mean, just such a fantastic point. I want to throw something out there. You know, all of the different uh, conditions that have lasted for for um, uh, since the beginning of time, essentially, of, uh, with with evolution, say thrombophilias. You know, preventing hemorrhage uh, in in in, uh, in the early days of, of of mankind. Why, from a teleologic standpoint, do you find, Dr. Zisa, there's in your in your research any reason? That, that PCOS uh, has has continued. Is there an evolutionary advantage to that? You know, we it, it's obviously a difficult question to uh, to study, but we have done and others have done some mathematical calculations. So this is sort of what we know. We we, we think that PCOS uh, first is a very ancient disorder, probably fifty sixty thousand years old, uh, just from the the fact that it's actually so prevalent. In, in across the globe in all sorts of ethnicities. Secondly, we, we don't think that it's just sort of a favorable selection, right? So because if, if from an evolutionary point of view, if it was positive, it was good to have PCOS. You know, we'd have a lot more women with PCOS. So it's high, but not that high. So we, we think that really there has been sort of selection uh, by inbreeding uh, and by what we call genetic drift. This is sort of an accumulation of genetic variants over time as as people travel the globe uh, in the early uh, steps of mankind. Um, we don't specifically think that there's an actual advantage to having PCOS. Now, 
We may be wrong, right? There may be an advantage not for the patient, maybe for her relatives or something else. But it's a very good question. It's a great puzzle. How does a disorder that affects fertility, reduces the ability to have children, exist for so long and in such high proportion? Yeah, yeah, really, really interesting. That, 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 I ponder that often. You, you know, the, when we look at the criteria of PCOS, often we'll, we'll, you will use the Rotterdam. And, and for those that are listening, I'm, uh, you're probably aware the three criteria. One of them is ovulation dysfunction, you know, regular menstrual intervals. Uh, and, and about 20% of the PCOS patients, even if they have monthly cycles, they, they may not be ovulating. And, and the second criteria is some, some measure of elevated male hormone, either they have the hair growth in those sex-dependent regions, or, uh, or they'll have elevated testosterone, uh, or even DHEAS levels. And the third is a, is a criteria by ultrasound, certain characteristics that you see on ultrasound. Now, Dr. Zeese was involved in the 2006 Androgen Excess Society, where uh, you, you really need to have that elevated male hormone, some measure of that. And, and I'm wondering, that you know, you, we're seeing now numbers that are almost up to one in five women with this disorder, based on the study. And and, and do you think, Dr. Zeis, that um, we're broadening the criteria, or are physicians uh, increasing in awareness? I mean, why are these numbers uh, go, uh, higher than what we used to quote of the six to ten percent? So you know, as you mentioned, there are three criteria. All to be fair, they tend to be overlapping uh, in growth of one and the other. You know, that when you use very strict criteria for PCOS, what we would call the classic PCOS, roughly about 10% of a, of a female, of, of women's population, if you would, a population of women, will be affected, one in 10. But when you add in another kind of feature, the, the so-called ovulatory PCOS, where these have uh, high male hormones or hirsutism, and they have, uh, they have basically polycystic ovaries, but normal ovulation, that has another 5% or so in that population. And finally, if you add the last uh, kind of phenotype, we call it phenotype, the, the way that it presents, which is women which we call non-hyperandrogenic PCOS, meaning that women have polycystic ovaries, irregular ovulation, but really have no evidence of excess male hormones, that adds another 5%, and that gets you to the, if you would, to the 10%, to the 20% that you're talking about, the 1 in 5 the question really is, are we dealing with one disorder or multiple disorders? Is the disorder of patients that don't have evidence of excess male hormones the same as those that have excess male hormones? And we have evidence that that's not the case, that there are some differences. For example, women who have high male hormones or evidence of excess male hormones like hirsutism tend to have a much higher risk for diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and these issues than women who do not have evidence of excess male hormones. Yeah. I, I, I just wish that, that your, your last point was, was well-received by everyone uh, clinician-wise because I'm just not seeing these patients being screened for the prediabetes, insulin resistance. Uh, they'll, they'll simply perform a fasting glucose, actually, and if, they, uh, and if that's normal, uh, they don't do the two-hour, in which they could miss up to 30%. Uh, of, of uh, pre-diabetes uh, in those patients. So, do you, do you think, uh, to, for convenience sake, is it is it reasonable to just get a hemoglobin A1C or even the uh, homeostasis uh, measure of uh, of insulin resistance uh, with with the formula of of of, um, 
with insulin and glucose, do you think that those are reasonable or the two-hour GDT is still the gold standard and should be done at all? So that's a very good question. You know, women with PCOS are at greater risk for having diabetes, five to seven-fold higher risk than an age-matched sort of group. So it's very high, um, and, and but one of the peculiarities about patients with PCOS is that their pancreas works pretty good and is able to sort of keep the sugar levels relatively normal at baseline. So you've got to stress these patients for them to show that you that get that they're unable to sort of keep their sugar levels normal. So while somebody obviously, if patients with PCOS are in frank diabetes, sure they can be. Uh, detected with just a fasting glucose or a hemoglobin A1C. The problem is that many of them do already have significant prediabetes and even early diabetes, and you would not find that just by those tests. You actually have to stress them, and that's what we call the glucose tolerance test, where you drink all this very sugary stuff and then measure blood, uh, you know, before one and two hours after the, the drinking that. Uh, so the gold standard today continues to be a glucose tolerance test for patients with PCOS. Yeah, and, and that's either thin or overweight. Exactly. Now, yeah. it's very clear that the risk of diabetes is higher uh, the more you gain weight. And so there is some debate in the field as to whether we should screen all patients with PCOS with a glucose tolerance test or just those patients who have high risk factors, family history, diabetes, you know, obesity, these kind of things. Personally, I, I think uh, because it's such a simple test to do, I recommend it in all patients with PCOS uh, at least once uh, at the beginning of their uh, evaluation. Yeah, I, I do as well. I'm glad that you said that. Uh, you know, the 2000, this year, the International Committee uh, for, for the Guidelines uh, on Assessment and Management of, of PCOS uh, talked about inositol, that is an endogenous sizing agent, uh, it seems like it needs further research, and they'll, they'll, they'll come to me with uh, commercial products that have some inositol, but I don't think we're there yet in, in, in helping the patients uh, to conceive. Uh, but metformin, uh, you know, years ago with, with John Nestor's original study, serendipitously finding the patients ovulating uh, that were given metformin, it, we gave it out like candy uh, probably about two decades ago, and now, and now you know, then it backed off, and from no improvement in live birth, and now it seems like it may have swung a little bit more in favor. Where, where do you see, strictly on a fertility uh, basis, where do you see the role of metformin? So, you know, and, and I agree with you, it's it, it swung, the pendulum has swung back and forth. You know, I think that, that uh, what we know is the following, you know, metformin is a very modestly acting agent on ovulation. So if we're talking about fertility and ovulation, you know, it, it helps ovulation a little bit, but not very much. There's certainly much better drugs uh, and treatments for ovulatory problems in women with PCOS than metformin. Uh, but, but having said that, you know, many women, uh, as I said, even up to two-thirds of women with PCOS may have significant enough insulin resistance that they need to have some insulin sensitizer like metformin. So sometimes... The reason I think it's been gaining popularity is that many patients benefit from metformin because uh, for their uh, metabolic uh, prediabetes kind of situation, and then that also allows them to begin to ovulate somewhat better. But again, it's not a preferred ovulatory drug. We don't really want to use it primarily for that. 
whether it's uh, useful, for example, in combination with clomiphene uh, rather than clomiphene alone, it's still unclear, but probably also not a significant benefit. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of ovulation induction, uh, we're now uh, been using letrozole, and that was endorsed by the recent uh, guidelines. You know, the late growth study in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2014 looked at cumulative success rates, uh, as you know, with letrozole versus clomiphene, uh, and letrozole was superior in patients who were overweight, uh, BMI is above 30. But the success rates were, were purely at best maybe 30% over five cycles, and then certainly higher BMI is lower success. Do you think that we're delaying more effective treatment? I mean, 30% over five cycles is not very, very good, uh, but that's, that's even, we can't always even say that they're going to be ovulating. We're doing multiple ovulation induction cycles. These patients already come frustrated. Are we delaying more effective treatment? And, and why do you think ovarian drilling is not more popular? So ovarian, that's an excellent question. So, so two things. I think, as you know, it depends on really the patient's age. So if a patient comes to you, has PCOS, uh, uh, and needs treatment and is now has a somewhat what we call, you know, euphemistically advanced maternal age or however you want to define it, but you know, is in her late thirties and so on. I do think that we should give very careful consideration to saying, you know what, we're just not going to use these simpler things. We're just going to go to more aggressive therapy uh, to gain on time. But then the flip side is that many of these patients are in their earlier mid-20s and so on and so forth, and I think that a 30% or even a 40% pregnancy rate over a five-month period of time, if they've been, say, already waiting for 18 months, two years, is not an unreasonable decision of the patient. The key here, of course, is patient decision. Patients need to make their own decisions around what drugs to use. But, again, it depends on the age, I think, more than anything else. Yeah, I, I do a, a reasonable amount of drilling. Certainly, I give them all the options, but in Florida, insurance is not mandated coverage for fertility, and if they have been unsuccessful with ovulation induction medications, it's a big jump to go to in vitro fertilization with the cost. So we'll, we'll, for women less than 38, um, 37, 38, I'll offer ovarian drilling to them, and, and we have seen about two-thirds of patients uh, having ovulation and about half of them uh, having live births and some of them several live births subsequently because they keep on ovulating. So I don't think, it, I, I think it's important to at least address it. Now certainly uh, injectable fertility medications seem to be equally uh, effective as the ovarian drilling but that of course comes at the expense of live, uh, of multiple births and, and then uh, repeated cycles of having to be monitored and going through the injection. So I just think it's, it's been given a bad rap for the uh, for ovarian drilling and just briefly for the for the listeners, that's the surgery that a laparoscopy telescope through the belly button and we and we burn holes into the ovaries, draining the cysts. We don't truly understand why ovarian drilling works, believe it or not. It's been around since the 1970s in, in its in its current form, but it's uh, we're not sure about why draining the cysts seems to improve hormonal balance. But it's it's an interesting. Uh, approach that might allow patients to conceive naturally and, and of course save money from, from going to more expensive uh, uh, medications. But you know, um, uh, unfortunately, uh, we are running out of time and, and this, this is probably one of the fastest podcasts, at least for me, because I've, I've enjoyed this so much. Um, you, you've continued to teach me 
through, through your writing and now through this interview, Dr. Aziz, about, uh, about this certainly prevalent and extremely frustrating condition, uh, uh, PCOS. And, and I know our listeners have just been given a great gift uh, today by having you on our show. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, and uh, it is a disorder that affects many, many women. Uh, and unfortunately, we still don't have their optimum care. I think we are raising a lot of uh, uh, awareness around this. Uh, groups uh, of, of patients like PCOS Challenge are doing it. But, uh, but I appreciate you doing this because this is so important. My pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Zeeson. Thank you all for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. If there's anything from today's show you want to learn more about, check out the IVFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this episode. If you're not already subscribed to the show, please press the subscribe button on your podcast player so you don't miss a future episode. And if you haven't given us a review or rating on iTunes yet, consider leaving a five-star review to help us reach and educate even more individuals in need. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.